She she just was considered too outspoken or controversial or honest, maybe, with what they expected from poetesses or the, the women poets that were popular at that time. You know, they couldn't just come out and question God. They couldn't come out and just speak out against the society or the male dominated things or marriage problems or or honest grief like we said or civil war or slavery or all these issues that she deals with this is professor elizabeth ranker from the department of english at the ohio state university and I have the fantastic opportunity here today sitting in Fremont, Ohio at the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Library to talk with Dr. Larry R. Michaels, the scholar who produced the first modern edition of Sarah Piat's poetry titled That New World, Selected Poems of Sarah Piat, 1861 to 1911, published in 1999. And um, Dr. Michaels and I are going to have a conversation about how he came to find Sarah Piat, leading to the publication of his groundbreaking edition. So, Larry, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you. uh, Can you tell us about how this book came to be? How did you find Sarah? Wow. Thank you, Elizabeth. First of all, thanks for inviting me to be recorded here today, and I hope it might be fantastic. <laughs> but anyway, it's an honor. And uh, Sarah Piat, it was kind of, I found her by chance, um, just because I, I like poetry. I've read poetry all my life, and I kind of like to scour obscure volumes to look for uh, poems that might stand out that people aren't, aren't aware of, the author. I mean, a lot of a lot of well-known poems are like single poems by an author. And so I'm always kind of looking around, and I was reading Emerson Venable's Poets of Ohio. And Emerson was a son of uh, William Henry Venable, well-known. And so um, reading through Emerson Venable, and he's got about 20 poets in there of Ohio, and people like the Carey Sisters and Edith Thomas and some of those Gilded Age poets or earlier. And um, then I started reading these poems that just uh, were like none of the others and just really stood out. They, they were direct. They, they were very clear. They were passionate about their topic. They um, um, discussed things in ways that weren't conventional that you read in most poetry of that era. And I remember the one especially was called No Help. It was a poem of grief about um, losing either it was one of the sons, the first son, Victor, or, or a, a baby. It's hard to tell. And and it was just, there was no consolation for the grief. Um, you know, heaven lies too far. Uh, my way to him through other darkness, utter darkness lies. 
Um, you know, it's just, she just cannot be reconciled. And she finds no comfort. And it ends with, you know, God cannot help me because God cannot break his own dark law for my poor sorrow's sake. Mm-hmm. And that's just not like anything of that era because usually there's consolation in heaven and, you know, and she says, do I want a little angel? No, I want my child. And even in, in bitter pain, she would call him back again, you know, even if he had to suffer because her grief is so intense. And I'm, I'm just thinking at the time that this is, this is really different. This is direct. This speaks to right now. You know, uh, over a century later, just as strong as it did then. And then reading some of the other poems, and then you discover her poems with children, where she can be whimsical and teasing and and writing actually beautiful dialogue poems in um, in really tight verse and tight rhyme schemes. And just this facility she has as a poet, but also how she can express these things. And I'm thinking, you know, you don't read these kind of monologues or dialogues, you know, between Browning and Frost, say. I mean, you don't read that in that, that poems like you find in that era usually. So I just got curious about her and started looking for more of her poems. So you can go to, you know, Stedman's anthology published in 1900, that comprehensive um, 19th century anthology, and he had included quite a few of her poems. And then find out she had published all these books, and that her, you know, her husband was was well known and and connected with Howells and all these connections. And you find out then she was in Ireland and Washington D.C. And then you find out she had written not only about grief and childhood, but also about slavery and the Civil War. Here she was from Kentucky, um, in royalty in Kentucky, really, Boone, Daniel Boone family and the Bryans and settlers of Lexington and educated and well-known poet in Kentucky before she even got married. Then she marries a guy from Ohio. They live outside of Cincinnati. She's looking right across the Mason-Dixon line. And during the Civil War, she's in Washington when the Battle of First Bull Run was fought, and right involved in all these things. And so she writes about the Civil War. She writes about battlefields. She writes about, of course, the North and the South, about slavery. She writes about um, marriage. She writes about losing children. She lost two tragically. Um, and then, then she goes to Ireland when John was consul there and, and writes these poems about Ireland that are just fascinating. And what a, what a variety of, of poems she wrote. I mean, it's just amazing to me. So you're, you're, you were engaged in a scholar adventure. Use <laughs> yeah, a term you and I have shared. Yeah, the Altic. Uh, yeah. yeah. So um, I know that a lot of the students listening to this um, would be interested in hearing a little bit about the practicalities of that. How did you go after searching for an author that basically nobody had heard of? You know, that's that's a good question. And, well, you know, Elizabeth, certainly. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you just 
kind of keep digging around in these early anthologies and, and books that people aren't reading much anymore, and you find her anthologized quite a bit, and then you can actually find her books. They're all expensive now. Um, they weren't when you started. No, right? but you could go online and and bid on, on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> we, we joke because we bid against each other. But um, we, I should add, I'll add a footnote for the audience that, that – uh, Larry and I first met in a bidding war over Sarah Piat books on eBay. That yes. Was, that was how we met, finally. And I know. Now we're fast friends. And she's forgiven me. And, <laughs> he yeah. won every time. Yeah, he got every book. <laughs> but, oh, so um, you'd go and look at places like eBay and just see what was out there. Well, eventually to get her books. Mm-hmm. And actually, Toledo Lucas County Public Library has three of them. Is that right? But you can't find them because they're in their stacks oh, collection okay. in the warehouse oh. because... They hadn't circulated for 20 years or something. And so you try to find these books, and you go back and actually read the books in context Mm -hmm. as she's putting together the book in a thematic way and and just kind of find all the poems you can. Mm -hmm. And then you just – I just found more and more, you know. I I think maybe a peak at parting was in in Venable's book, but most of them were more the traditional ones, you know, the witch in the glass or something. And and, and so – you want to get into her books. And then I was aware of the Piat Castles down in West Liberty, Ohio. You had heard of that already? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I like history. And, and so, you know, and the, the name connection and everything. So I went down and met Margaret Piat. And and Margaret was big on, you know, Don Piat and the... You know the fam- her family and and the connections with John James and and so it, lo and behold in one of the castles in the the library up in the ceiling is a glass panel with Sarah's picture in it and so you just finding these things so then Margaret let me go up in the attic at that time it was a little nook in the attic kind of where they had the uh, the Capitol. Uh, this the the capital is the Washington D.C. newspaper published, published by Don Piat. Yes, and uh, our our audience might not be familiar with that because it's a very very rare periodical, but a great historical record of Washington D.C. politics mm-hmm. during the Reconstruction period. Yes, and um, and Don published numerous poems by Sarah in the Capitol. That's so, right. So you had your hands on the Capitol in the Piat Castles at a time when no one had heard of the newspaper or of Sarah, and uh, you were right there at uh, in the primary sources. Uh, right there in the primary sources, up there in this little nook in the attic. And, of course, we couldn't photocopy anything. So my wife Susie was there, and she was copying down the the poems out of the out of the newspaper, and I'm just looking through page by page because it wasn't indexed or anything. Page by page, and trying to find them. Some of them were um, were unattributed, and you just had to kind of go by the sound of it. Hmm. And I was just kind of learning about her at the time, hmm. and you'd kind of hear her voice in hmm. some, but you weren't sure. Huh. And so we had to go back and kind of dig around and research that, too. So that's an interesting uh, topic, I think, for a lot of people in our audience. How, at at this point, did you know you were working on a selected edition, or were you still just... uh, No, just curious. Just curious, okay. And just accumulating poems. Mm -hmm. And and that's why it's so nice to be able to think now that Ohio State is going, is building this collection and digitizing things and making things available 
for future students and scholars because she's worth it. But then, um, yeah, then, of course, the capital and writing those all down and going back and, and typing them up. And, and then, then, I, then I went to Louisville, and they have in the library there the, um, on microfilm the Louisville Journal, where she was published by Prentice so many times. Uh, and that's where she first became well known in Kentucky before she was married to John James, and and so then you f- go through that kind of microfilm and you find some of these and some, you know, this was poems that not really published later in books. They were just I don't want to say juvenile poems because they were good, a lot of them, but her first poems, first publications, and and so a lot of them had her name on it because Prentice really promoted her. And so you find those there, and then so you're writing those down, or um, or printing could print some out, and just collecting those poems, which are now becoming better known through Ohio State again, mm-hmm. and the work of some students and researchers. And of course, she wasn't, as you mentioned a minute ago. It's it's important for students, especially, to realize that when you're researching that stage of her career, you're not looking for Sarah Pia because she's not married yet. So right. her name's appearing under a lot of different forms when she's yes. a young poet, right? Yeah, because Prentice, her name was uh, uh, Sarah Morgan. That was the mother's name, actually, the descendant from, or father's name, I, I don't know for sure, but descendant from Boone because Boone's wife was a Morgan. Uh, Sarah Morgan, I think it was. That's where she got her name. But um, but anyway, yeah, this is – it was Sally Bryan was the most common. She was a Bryan. Sally Bryan or sometimes Sarah Bryan, sometimes just poem by Sally or something like that. And you had to just kind of read it and figure it out. This was back in the early to mid-'90s. Doing that, you, a, that you were down, down, down there Louisville? doing all this. Yeah. And there was a librarian down there named, uh, I think her name was Sarah Gray, who helped me a lot. Mm-hmm. It was a friend of somebody I knew. And so the Louisville Journal provided a lot of information. Mm-hmm. And that was just, it's just so much fun. Mm. So how had, you, how had you pieced together that if you went to Louisville, you should be able to find stuff? And getting um, back in touch with your scholar adventure. You had poems by... Her under her married name Piat. Yes. In, in Venable and, and Stedman. Yeah, and, and there were little biogra- biographical sketches mm-hmm. by Stedman, and you know because they were close. Mm-hmm. You know the letters with Stedman and everything that we didn't know about at the time. But um, yeah, he'd do a little biographical information, and and then we went from Louisville down to um, the the seminary she attended down in uh, Henry Female Seminary. Henry Female. Uh, seminary in Newcastle. And of course it's not there, but we found her marriage license and because she was married there too. She lived with Annie Boone down there at that time when they were married or, you know, she got married down there. So just trying to piece this stuff together at the time. And, and so we visited these sites and gathered everything we could. And then I just kept looking for poems, basically. It was all it was. And okay. finding her books mm-hmm. online and, and wherever and, and then just collecting them. And then the more poems I found, the better I liked her and the variety of poems, like I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And so then I just started putting together in a book because I'd done several, like, you know, local history books and different kinds of 
ways to put books together just to do it myself. Mm-hmm. And and talked to Margaret Piat about it and through the castles. And actually, Ohio State was thinking of publishing it. But you probably know this story, don't you, Elizabeth? I don't know that if I know the whole story. They sent it out to Paula as a reader. And Paula was published, working on her own book. That was what had happened. And so so they didn't want to do two at the same time. And, and so um, tell me a little bit about how you decided on the contents of this volume, having done all the research you did. Um, just collect the poems that I, I thought were the most representative of all the different topics that she talked about. Hmm. And try to get the... The best ones are most representative of that from all the different books over the years, you know, over a a 50-year period of her publishing. And um, in kind of... Her career really spans that entire second half of the 19th century, right? It's one of the amazing things Yeah, the whole Reconstruction era, Gilded Age, Mm -hmm. into the 20th century. And, And so... And then there were the poems that were never published in books. That we found, like in the Capitol, some of the most heart-wrenching um, poems she wrote, and almost bitter in some cases, and and the ones that just weren't considered, you know, women should be publishing at that era. You know, they weren't popular. Uh, that's one reason why she wasn't as popular as some of the more traditional flowery poets. Uh, from that that era that are mostly now all forgotten too but but she couldn't publish the the most difficult poems and so just trying anything i found that i thought was representative of her her best work mm-hmm. uh, but even some of the not best work that illustrated other era areas of her of her writing mm-hmm. and just put them all together and I, and just kind of put it together myself and through the castles and Margaret, we just put it out, thinking, we'll just put this out here and see. And then when Paula's book came out, then it, that, Paula was really a, the pioneer in, in scholarly research. And, and I got to talk to her several times because she wondered, you know, who is this guy that's interested in? Because Paula had been writing about her and, and studying her. And, and I had read then some of her articles and her 19th century anthologies, a gem. Um, her Blackwell anthology. Her Blackwell American anthology that books. I've used as kind of a a, a diagram for mm-hmm. understanding the, the era and those poets, mm-hmm. and, and so I was really thrilled that she, you know, was and she was kind of wondering who this guy was that was researching her, and so we got to talk about stuff too. And then when her book came out, that was another really huge boost. Mm-hmm. And Paula went to. People like um, Kilcup, I think it was, and some of the other anthologists that were putting together anthologies of that era and getting Sarah's poems and some of those. And they just kind of spread, you know, because I remember John Hollander then mentioned um, and included, uh, which one was it? Giving Back the Flower. Giving Back the Flower in his big anthology. and. And it just kind of spread, and now there's just so much more interest in her. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the poetry. Yeah. Just, 
She she is, uh, as you know, you and I have had a chance to work together with some of my classes with undergraduates and graduate yes. students. And yeah. my experience consistently from the very first time I taught Sarah, which was probably 2001, up to the present time, is that students instantly love her. Yes. And, um, you know, all the given all the... Um, knowledge you have about the many poets you've mentioned, like you mentioned Edith Thomas and the Carey sisters and so on. Um, I, I just wonder what your understanding is about why this should be Sarah's moment. Say, it, you know, and it's not yeah. that Edith Thomas is having a huge, huge resurgence or the Carey sisters. I mean, why it should right. be Sarah. Why know, it's Sarah. Around the year yeah. 2000. Well, first just let me say, though, mm-hmm. Your influence has been a really good big part of that because you are such a great combination of researcher and teacher, the way you work with students and getting your students involved with it. And a lot of your students have done some really good things. We have seen amazing student work. On your there. students yeah, have really – that's why Ohio State is so important in, in, in being a center for, for Sarah. But And so, yeah, Elizabeth, you're doing – Tremendous work on her, and and that's helping so much. And but it, it it has to go back to the poetry. I mean, that's what it's all based on. Mm-hmm. It's not because she was such an important historical figure of the era or mm-hmm. had such an influence. I mean, she just wrote this. She had this gift. She could just write these poems, mm-hmm. and um, and so and so. Um, my wife just walked in, <laughs> so I had to pause. Okay. <laughs> and so um, it comes back to the poetry um, that, like you say, the students now in the in the 21st century can read her and are attracted to her because she speaks to the the human heart that is timeless. I mean, that's the gift. That's now, what poetry is. Now, going back to, you know, the research you were doing when you were discovering her, um, you also sorted through a lot of the reviews and so on mm-hmm. of her work. And so, um, in your view, was the reaction her poetry was getting in her own time different from the reaction you're seeing her get now. This is a topic that's always of interest to students. Yes. It's, it's, you yes. earlier said you felt, as a, as a lover of poetry and a scholar of poetry, you feel that her voice is distinctive among other poets and among other women poets of the time. Yes. Um, and she was widely reviewed. Do you feel that there is a big difference between what people got from her poetry then and what they're getting now? Yes. Yeah, I think they appreciate her more now. Like I said, you know, at the time, she she just was considered too outspoken or controversial or honest, maybe, with what they expected from poetesses mm-hmm. or the, the women poets that were popular at that mm-hmm. time. You know, they couldn't just come out and question God. They couldn't come out and just speak out against the society or the male dominated things or marriage problems or or honest grief like we said or civil war or slavery or all these issues that she deals with mm-hmm. in in a way that's more meaningful now than than people appreciated then and so yeah that's why i don't i 
I'd like to find out how many copies Houghton Mifflin published of the books. It's hard to get that information, mm-hmm. whether it was 500 or what or... Good question. Yeah. yeah, and because the books are scarce today and they're hard to find, but maybe they're just buried in libraries here and there, or a lot more of them around than we think. Yes, right. So, but they didn't sell real big. Yeah, they didn't make right. a lot of money. Yeah, good Good point. And, you know, another thing, too, you got to give John credit, John James. you got to give him credit because he's the one that sent it out. And even after she became more well-known in a way than his poems faded, you know, in his lifetime kind of faded away, he still sent her stuff out. Mm-hmm. And anthologizer and the Hesperian tree and went to editors promoting her and and Stedman anthologizing her and mm-hmm. and and John James promoted all that mm-hmm. and she gave him credit for that because she didn't really care she wrote him for herself she didn't really care what other people thought and she didn't want a lot of critical acclaim mm-hmm. and it was kind of you know like like Dickinson almost just not that's a whole different thing but you know she just wasn't interested in being published and well-known as a poet. She wrote these because it was her honest heart pouring out. And I like that about her. I, I really do. Can you talk a little bit more about um, the ways that uh, John James, her husband, managed her career? For, for people in our audience who don't really know that much about 19th century uh, writing habits, what, what did that mean That he, when you say he was promoting her? It was... In a way, it was the first time that that women had access to publication a lot. And poetry was read by everybody, and it was a lot of publications. And so everybody was publishing in, you know, Scribner, Century, Atlantic Monthly, all of the publications, and many, many more. And so John would kind of take charge. He knew the editors, you know, and through Howells and all these. He was connected with, you know, Stoddard and all these people. And so he just sends stuff out, keeps sending stuff out. And and there was a there was a market for it. And so and the publication of, of her books. And and because Houghton Mifflin was the big publisher of poetry. Mm-hmm. And so he had access to all of that. I mean he was librarian of the Library of Congress. And then later consul to Ireland. I mean, he, he had a lot of connections, even though he never made much money. Yes, right. But he, um, he did have access, and he, he just kept sending things out and putting her out there. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we have all of the books still that were published, and all these poems can still be found and accessed today. She didn't have to just go like publish them privately, one or two little books of her own. He, mm-hmm. he had the access for her. Now, you mentioned earlier that um, you think that a lot of the poems that appeared in places like the Capitol uh, in periodicals that were not collected in books might have been more controversial poems. Yes. Uh, so do, you, uh, do, you, do we have to guess about who decided which poems would be in her books? That's a good question, isn't it? That's something that'd be fun to dig yes, around in, isn't it? It takes us back to scholar adventures, and yes. when you rediscover an author, um, it, it's I think it's a once, whole new ballgame. Yeah, and once you say this to general readers, they say, "Oh, of course that makes sense." But until you explain, until scholars create 
biographies and editions and yes. so on. All you have is stuff and gaps that mm-hmm. have to be filled, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they always mention all this collection of books they had and autographs and everything, and then they had the fire. And where did all that stuff go? Was it lost? Where is, where's their papers? Can you talk about the fire? The fire in North Bend uh, after they came back from Ireland and, and England and, and settled back in North Bend. They had a, a terrible fire there at the Riverbrow, it was called, the house there in North Bend. And I, we don't know how much was lost or, or that. And and not much was published after that. And they had both kind of faded into obscurity by that time. And so there wasn't a lot of other writing about either one of them. And, and so where where is all that? Or where did it go? Is it in a library somewhere or passed down through Cecil and the family? Mm-hmm. And it's all kinds of scholar adventures. Yes, right. You know, and for scholars and for students, I just want to say, you know, this if you're interested in her and read her and like her, there's all kinds of opportunities. Right to explore these yeah. things. Yeah. And how about in your various travels? You mentioned the, the some of the kinds of hunting that you did, and I know you've done other things too that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet, but um, what's your sense of how scattered the materials are and where they might be? For example, correspondence could be anywhere. Right? Yes, yes. You don't, no one has collected it. We don't have a collected edition of her correspondence. No. See, that's another big thing that could be. Yeah, I agree. Someone I mean, needs to do that. Yeah, Ohio State has quite a bit, and and uh, uh, Paula donated a lot, mm-hmm. and through Pam Kinchlow's researches, too, and a lot was gathered. But who knows what's over in Ireland, you know, or England? Um, and, you know, Tynan's connections and all those people. I mean, Yates wrote a review. And, mm-hmm. and so where is the the stuff in what libraries could things be there's just all these opportunities to find things and you could begin with a small collection of the letters and then um just it'll just be expanding this this whole thing should be expanding if if we're, if we're right if her poetry really is canonical and will be read 100 years from now and appreciated there's all these opportunities to keep finding this, that's what makes it so fascinating yes, about her, yeah. and that's what really pulled me in to yeah. begin with. Mm-hmm. You know, because I just I love poetry, and right. and you can't help but love her yeah. when you read her poetry, yeah. and the students that are finding that out now. And you know, just if I can just say too, you know, that era since that era was pretty much forgotten. There's so many things to kind of dig around in there. There's not a whole lot in the early moderns or something that hasn't been mm-hmm. <laughs> studied and that and Elliot Pound and all, all of that, but, but, which was really my background. But, um, but this era is just so fascinating yeah. um, because of all of the little things you can find. And, and then, like I wrote in the introduction, Dickinson just overshadowed everything and really obliterated all the rest. So everybody reads Dickinson because of... You know, she's such a poet. But then they compare everybody to her and say, well, these poets aren't worth even researching today because they're dated, they're, you know, flowery and whatever. And then then here's Sarah, who isn't, who I think maybe in 100 years from now, they'll look at Dickinson and Piat saying they're both great poets of totally different style. 
because Emily's, you know, verbal, the the verbal dynamics, the, the universal themes of love and nature and grief and whatever, death. And here's Sarah writing about specific things, you know, of the era and bringing those to life in a way that is, it's not just poetic. It's, it's not just great poetry. It's, it's real life that she creates in, in great poetry. It's real human emotions and feelings that are, are just there and are transmitted. And like say some of those grief poems or something, or the playfulness with children. I mean, it's universal and you don't find that in other poets and it's there. And so I see her as a parallel with Dickinson. I'd say a parallel of that era, the two giants. Mm-hmm. Maybe. We'll see. Yeah, we'll and, see. Because right? there's some other ones. There's some good, you know, Elizabeth Stoddard, you got to love, uh, Guiney, some of the other writers. But mm-hmm. but I think here, Sarah is could be a giant of that era mm-hmm. because of the poetry. Mm-hmm. Well, you and I have uh, had occasion to talk many times also about what it means when our culture reclaims a previously uh, um, unknown author who yes. then becomes great. And the classic case I always talk about is Herman Melville. Well, your, your background in Melville. <laughs> who dies in yeah. obscurity and then becomes yeah. great oh, in yeah. the 1920s. So yeah. one of the thrilling things about oh, yeah. this project, right, is that we could be at that kind of a cusp with Sarah. And I know uh, certainly I feel that way about her work, and, and I know you feel that way too. And yes. um, a lot of the projects we've done together are um, are ones we've conducted in that spirit that we're trying to build yeah. things for posterity, essentially. And you're doing this, you're collecting this, and, and these recordings even, and, and the, the archive at Ohio State. is It's really important as we look because it's scholars, it's students, and people that love poetry that this matters to. And when you really think about poetry and the great poets... You look at Dickinson, died unknown, basically. Uh, Poe. Uh, you look at Hopkins. It wasn't until Bridges published him in 1918. It was like 30 years after he died before anybody ever heard of him. And you look at some of the, the poets that are most loved today. They weren't in their lifetime. And I think... Sarah is kind of different because she was published in her lifetime, but wasn't appreciated. And now maybe people can appreciate her better now, like we said. Now, you mentioned a minute ago, and I wonder if we can return to this topic. You mentioned um, the uh, modernist poets, and we haven't had a chance to talk about uh, your background as a graduate student and where, if I recall correctly, you worked mostly on modernism, right? Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the kind of work you did? Just very briefly, at at the University of Toledo, uh, we were fortunate enough to have um, um, a scholar there named Noel Stock. He wasn't even really a scholar because he never graduated from college. But he was the secretary for Ezra Pound at St. Elizabeth's, oh when Pound was, after World War II, was you know, considered treasonous uh-huh. for the things he said mm-hmm. about America from Italy during World War II mm-hmm. under Mussolini. And so he, he could have been put to death easily um, as a traitor. 
And so, but what they did, the poets and people kind of got together and said, well, we'll just say he was insane. So they put him in St. Elizabeth's in Washington. And here's Stock was his secretary. And all his correspondence and everything and was talking to him that period in the in the nineteen sixties, just you know, not long before he, he died. And and so Stock ends up as this professor at uh, at University of Toledo yeah. and he was my advisor. And I actually ended up writing about Elliot and and his career and his poetry and his editorial career. But um, that period just fascinated me. Mm-hmm. And I, I love Elliot in Pound. You can't read anymore. Well, now, this is one of the <laughs> but, reasons why I got us onto this topic. Okay. Because, um, as we both know, having uh, conducted our studies at a certain point in history, um, for a very long time, the modernists were considered to be uh, among the greatest poets and also to have sort of obliterated the previous generations of yes. poets, whom they often um, also denigrated. Yes. So, you know, and, and here you are. You did your graduate work in that area, and then you moved further back in the 19th century. Yeah. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, how you think our culture has shifted in, in your lifetime in its understanding of what great poetry is. That's Do you think a, that's, that's changing? A, yeah, it's always changing, though, okay, I think. Okay, good, good. Yeah. I really think it is. Because that's because I like history and I, I see it as cycles, of course, and yeah. So, but there's repetitions like we're talking about the Gilded Age things that are, you're seeing now in our culture. Um, you know the elements of the Gilded Age now in 21st century America. But um, yeah, I, I think the the modernists they were so new and revolutionary for that time after. Uh, so much just kind of trite and, you know, the poets that are mostly forgotten now the of the 90s and that. I mean, there was kind of a gap in there between well-known and really good poets. But even they pretty much like um, Frost and they thought Frost was not really a good poet because he wasn't, you know, modernist kind of guy and, and that. But um, so I, I'd see it as changing. But I see the at least my hope always is, is the best rises to the time. I mean, Shakespeare wasn't appreciated until, what, the mid-1700s. So it takes a while. Mm-hmm. And But the universal is always true. The true great does surface in, in human beings and in poetry, I think. And I, I, I kind of rely on that. And things go out of favor for a while, but then they come back. And what is really good... I mean, you're not going to come back to some of these forgotten poets. They're just they're of their period, you know, of their times and, and, and that. But, I mean, people are always going to be reading Eliot. People are always going to be reading Frost. People are always going to be reading Dickinson. And even Poe. you gotta, you got to like Poe <laughs> and, and those poets, you know, and then going back into the great romantics and, and these poets, even because they speak to the human condition. And, and I like to think that Sarah is one of those. I really do. I, I think uh, you look at the 19th century, I think she is. I think she is one of the canonical poets that will be in the canon and will be read into the future and appreciated. Um, 
is a canonical poet. Do you have a, a couple of personal favorites whose titles you might share with us, Sarahs? Oh, there's so many. Yeah, yeah the Irish poet. You know the Irish poets because you just came back from Ireland. That's right. And uh, in the the one in uh, uh, the cemetery, you know, mm-hmm. where where Lewis is buried. Lewis was her son. Her son drowned. that drowned there in Ireland and uh, is buried there. And the poem she writes about uh, the cemetery, visiting the cemetery in Wolf's grave there. Mm-hmm. But knowing after she wrote the poem, she'd have to. Now we know she had to go back there and her son was buried there. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many like that that I just cherish. I mean, the um, the giving back the flower, those poems that the New Thanksgiving, which is kind of bitter irony, the the ones about um, the, the ones with children, if I were queen or the I mean, I, I just if I look at the table of contents real quick, um, just so many. Mm-hmm. That um, we, I call it that new world because I kind of thought mm-hmm. it's that world. Her world is kind of new to us now again, you know, through her poems. Mm-hmm. But um, the one that Paula always emphasized, the, the Palace Burner, That's a great poem. is a great poem yeah. about the French Revolution, you know, and um, and the grief poems, of course, uh, uh, death. Before Death is just a, a tremendous grief poem. Um, and then there's poems like After Her First Party. Oh, that's a fantastic poem. Which is... It teaches great, too. It does, doesn't yeah. it? You I, taught it recently, too. Yeah, right? I read it yeah. at, the, at the Castles this summer. And and it, it's a dialogue with Marianne, her, who was a teenage daughter after her first party. And, and Marianne's all into the boys and the, what the party's like and what people mm-hmm. thought of her. And Sarah, her, talking to her mother, and the mother... The, the daughter asked about, did you ever go to a party like that? <laughs> My mother <laughs> can't imagine it, you know. And she said yes, and there was a boy there. And, and you know, well, do you know, can he, does he write to you or he can't write? And, and you know, you know he's, he's dead. Mm-hmm. Probably died in the Civil War. And, um, and, of course, the daughter doesn't understand it. But the dialogue is in this tight, rhymed stanzas that are – are really tight stanzas, but yet it reads just like voices talking to each other. And that's yeah. that's such a gift. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that uh, this maybe comes back to something we can flesh out a little bit for our, our audience. Earlier you mentioned uh, Sarah in the company of Browning and Frost. Yeah. And I think this is the kind of topic you were getting at there, right? Yeah. It's the way that they write. That's kind of a bridge. Natural speech. Yeah. I mean, you read Frost's, you know, the uh, Death of the Hired Man or some of those, and you read Browning's dramatic monologues, but she writes dialogues. Yes. She can write it in, in dialogues. Yes, and right, they, yes. That is an amazing thing about it is. her, right? Yeah. And you have to get, when, you, when, when people yeah. are reading her for the first time, of course, styles are very different today, and you almost have to... You have to explain to people that they're going to hear multiple voices that yeah. won't be identified and not to just get frustrated and give up. Yes, right? exactly. You're going to see quotation marks. You don't know who's talking. Yeah. And you have to treat it almost like a puzzle. And once you get it, then you get it. And you do. Yeah. And and her symbolism even. You know, she does use flowers as symbols or, mm-hmm. or – um, the South is kind of this heavenly, and it's a lot of sim- symbolism. And you have to kind of pick up the patterns of her symbolism and and things like that. You have to work. You have to read her poem several times. Okay. 
You really do. Yeah. And because it's a lot of historical figures. I mean, even the ones with children, where if I were a queen, and she's referring to Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and she's referring to all of these historic figures. Her poem about uh, Franklin being stranded in the ice and the Northwest Passage and Lady Franklin. And you have to know something and and go back and find out what she's talking about and then know some of her symbolism. And But then, you know, it just adds to the impact because the poem itself has an impact at first reading. So you want to go back and find out more. It's not just a trite poem that you realize there's nothing memorable about it. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> now, given that your your selected edition again was the pioneering uh, publication of her work since her death in 1919, yeah. and your book came out in '99, and a lot of things have happened since then. And as you've said, wheels are turning. People have gotten interested. There's a growing body of scholarship about her, conference mm-hmm. presentations, books, and so on. Um, and I think I mentioned earlier that among the first wave of scholars who were unbeknownst to not one another, discovering Piat at the same time, mm-hmm. there was you, there was Paula Bennett, and then Jess Roberts and William Spengeman working on their Penguin mm-hmm. edition that included a Piat section. Mm-hmm. And then also Pamela Kinchelow, who was working with Paula Bennett. Pamela mm-hmm. was a graduate student at the time. You, you folks were all in that first wave. And since your pioneering work, there's been this second wave of scholars, and that's where people like me came, you know, got interested through learning about Sarah yes. through your work. But um, the rediscovery of Sarah is progressing, and a lot of things still need to be done. So yes. we mentioned earlier there's no edition of her letters. Yes. Um, no one has yet found things we dream of finding. Is there a diary anywhere, for example? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some family letters. Are there more letters out there? Are there um, more copies of books out there? You mentioned that the books are scarce. Mm-hmm. And since Sarah Piott's name, unlike a name like William Shakespeare, is not well known, there's probably a lot of stuff out there people just don't recognize. They don't know they what don't, it is. Yeah, why would they know, right? Yeah, because they never heard so of it. So we might still find a lot of stuff. Oh, but, yeah. Um, oh, I'm confident that... There will be things. So in, in, on your dream list, your dream list <laughs> of things that could, A, be found, and B, things that we need people to hunt for or, or uh, publish about Sarah, what are some of the, what are some of the, your, what's on your dream list in that regard? I, I think um, right now just what you're doing okay. at Ohio State and with students and the archive, but then also... I mean, Paula's um, book was really good anthology. But I, I would like to see an anthology now again with um, some of the other people now that are involved with, and more by, by themes. You know, the, um, the Civil War poems, the, the grief poems, the mm-hmm. Irish. Mm-hmm. And... And give a little background on the poem, maybe a little more than just mm-hmm. just some notes, mm-hmm. and kind of tell a story of what that was going on at the time, mm-hmm. and and around the whole theme of her passion. I was thinking if I would do one, it would be uh, the passion of human pain from mm-hmm. her word of reproach, mm-hmm. which is another one I like. It's a, a fantastic lot. poem. I yeah, agree. I love that one. And it's just her. Her passion for 
all the things that she had to experience. I mean, it was just about life. Because that poem is about chiding her husband because he's just – he just satisfied with the platitudes and heaven and mm-hmm. you know and just everything will be fine and and she's really in there suffering a lot of times and 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 just build an anthology around those with background mm-hmm. not just the poems sitting there but the story behind them maybe as a kind of um uh, even uh, a slim anthology for the general reader. Yes, kind of maybe, yes. Maybe even people who aren't that comfortable with poetry yet to help them. Yeah, to, to bring them into the poem. Yeah. And then they the could poem. see the background of it, say in Clonmel Parish, where, where Lewis is, yes. you know, and what she's thinking when the poem's written, then, then the whole story. Yes. And wouldn't that make a great, uh, those parallel pages? Yeah. yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, if somebody would be interested in doing something like that, that would be what I would do. It's, you know, now it's hard, you know, yeah, being yeah. a pastor and everything. It's mm-hmm. it's hard. And, and some of this has been quite a few years ago. But um, but I would like to see something like that. And just to get her out there more and more into the general schools mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. young people can read her and get her like you're doing with your students and get her out there in a in addition. Um, you know, it wasn't until like Cowley came out with a uh, Faulkner reader or something. Right. And brought his right. attention to him, you know, do uh, a Piat reader kind of thing. And, and uh, you know? given the pressures on publishers these days, the economic pressures, yes. we, we might have to think about digital formats. Um, for getting some of this stuff out too. Yeah, why not? Is you know also part yeah. of what we're trying to do at Ohio State, make things available. Oh, yeah. more quickly. Yeah. And um, yeah, if it, we can't do things in print immediately, to get them in digital form. Yeah, because I mean, you can go online now, and her poems are there. Yes, and people are talking about her poems. Uh, you yeah. can see that people, you know, they're occasionally blog postings, and she's yeah. she's developing a. An audience among people who also who are not necessarily academics, which is very going to be very important to her yes. fortunes. Also, that's I think that's the key. Yeah, really, I agree. I is think it's the is because yeah, the academia is kind of discovering her, mm-hmm. and then it needs to filter down into the yeah. the you know it, it it takes a little while, but I think you just give people a chance to read yeah. her, and it, and it will, and I think. If if maybe some students could do some background and, and the poems online and mm-hmm. add comments yes, to that'd them, be great. Mm-hmm. And give some background yeah. as people are reading them. It's yeah. not just having because her poems are hard at first read, mm-hmm. and give some background and get people reading them. Mm-hmm. Now, um, my last question for you as we're wrapping up today, and thank you again for spending so much time talking. <laughs> Thanks for listening. So. Um, it, it, because I am myself, as you know, an archive rat, <laughs> I am fascinated by these stories about how people um, discover things. And, of course, there's tons of pie, even if you looked at my office, piles and piles and stacks of paper. And only certain parts of that, those stacks make it into your public published, your published scholarship, right? So... You must have all kinds of files and papers and scraps for when you were working on Sarah that didn't make it into your selected edition. So I'm wondering, were there any mysteries you felt like, oh, you know, I found detail X or this or that thing and I couldn't follow up on it or I never figured it out? Is there anything like that lingering in the 
in the past that, yeah. that uh, you know, maybe nagged at you where you wished you could have found more? There's a lot. There's Elizabeth. a lot. I mean, you know enough. Yeah, that's uh, why I'm to, asking. Yeah. yeah. Are there any things you I, could share and that if it might light a fire under a student out there or a future wow. scholar to figure out? You know, that's something. And something, I'll try to make a list for you That'd or something. That'd be fantastic. You know, yeah. like Sean's doing down there in North yeah. Bend and yeah. in Cincinnati and where she was and what about the fire? What was lost? Yes. What, um, um, you know, just what about. Did she lose a baby? Was it a stillborn? Was it? Did she lose a couple babies? Judging from the poems. From the poems. And again, we're coming back to that important topic that students have to confront all the time. To what extent are the poems in a dramatic voice that is not her? And to what extent exactly. is she writing about something that happened to her, right? Exactly. Yes. yes. And um, that little cemetery there in North Bend where they probably just buried maybe a baby or something. We don't know. She'd go there and, and she would just, these poems would pour out, this grief. Mm-hmm. It's where she might have been when she did it. I mean, the more we can find about her life yes. would be the, the dream okay. thing. Okay. I mean, just yeah, as much as sense. students can go and find these details of her life, what they do in England? Back when she came back to London for that year after she was in Ireland, what, who'd she meet? What, what were the connections, you know? Yeah, yeah. Was Yates there? Was, you know, mm-hmm. Marion? What was Marion doing? Right. Um, all these things that were going on. And if you even dig back into Kentucky and what was it like there at Henry Female Seminary and, mm-hmm. and things like that and get other information and just flesh things out. Gosh, just off the top of my head... There's so many questions. I know I, if I thought about it a while, I could come up with some real intriguing mm-hmm. things. I mean, what the relationship with John, what, what was it really like? Mm-hmm. It seems to be she, she mentioned sex in oblique ways and stuff. So, or what was it like in how did she really feel about him? You know, she complains because he couldn't make any money and he was just kind of superficial and couldn't really talk to him about the deeper things. And, and when you say she complains, are you reading that through the poems? Or yeah, through the poems. Okay. You're not thinking that you found her saying this in a letter no. or something like that. And what is the tone of the letters? And she was kind of formal. I mean, she was uh, an aristocrat. And, you know, the, the question you were talking about of, of trying to find the, the slave. You know? It says, since Sarah grew up in a family of planters, there were human beings that her family owned, and yeah. we need to find out who she those people up, were. Uh, yeah, with her mother dying when she was eight and, and passed around from these different plantations, and they were slave owners. And, and the slave that, that cared for her, that came back later, was with her later. We were talking about some of the students yes, are interested and, and, in. And uh, the poem of Sarah's called The Black Princess talks yes. about this woman. And Larry and I were discussing recently that someone, perhaps myself, yes. <laughs> needs to get down into the papers in Kentucky, figure out where to find out if we have records of the names of the human beings that the that were on those plantations that the Bryan family owned, owned. and see if we yes. can find out who the black princess was what was her name when was she born when, yes. when was she purchased etc and try to find out details about those oh, human yeah. beings right there's so much yeah. and there has to be records because i mean they were boons Right. So you, you know, right. That's the question. Where do you find the records? Bryans. They be were wills, famous right? families. It could be, you have to just get out there and figure out who they were. Right. 
and Annie Boone, who was so important to her, and and all of these things, you know. Um, and then the connection with who's the who's the the boyfriend or whoever she was in love with that died in the Civil War, giving back the flower, or or other references when she writes about that. Does she have those regrets? Maybe she, if he would have lived, she married, and her life would have been different. Mm-hmm. And was John really the one, you know, the, it, all of those things. Yeah. It, those, all those things we know so little about. Yeah, that's uh, actually a very, very fitting place for us to, to wrap up our conversation, that there's so much to be done. Yes. There's so much to be discovered. Um, we have lots of poems, but we don't have a lot of biographical information apart from the poems and background to the poems yeah so that's one of the really big jobs that needs to be done yeah because your research over there in ireland helped so much Mm -hmm. with some of those irish poems Mm -hmm. you know and and yeah so everybody get to work yes we want to crowdsource (laughs) everybody get to work Um, Well, thank you, Larry, so much for taking the time to record this interview. I know that our audience is going to learn a lot from it and uh, appreciate all your scholarship and all your support for um, Piat Scholars present and future. Future. All right. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Discovering Sarah, America's Lost Great Writer, is produced and recorded in Columbus, Ohio, with the support of the Ohio State University College of Arts and Sciences Technology Services Studio, the Ohio State University Rare Books and Manuscripts Library, and the Ohio State University Knowledge Bank. Sound engineering by Paul Kotheimer, produced by Kayla Probion, and featuring the song The Heresy of Paraphrase by songwriter One Man Book. (laughs) ¶¶